0: Dear Catherine, I have great hopes for this year's episode of I'll Be Pod for Castmas, though not great expectations, which might, like the cherry orchard, have to wait for another year. But really, there's a lot to dig into here. For this Christmas in July, we'll be discussing two tales of second chances. For our lowbrow Christmas piece of pop culture, we'll return to the world of the Princess Switch with... The princess switched, too! Switched again! And for our higher-brow literature, you've persuaded us to read Jane Austen's final full novel, Persuasion. Jane Austen's Persuasion is a fascinating book. Much like Sense and Sensibility, it begins with an in-depth and, I imagine, slightly alien explanation of economics which lays our scene and the pride of the secondary characters, like Mrs. John Dashwood in Sense and Sensibility. This makes our main character seem more considerate or prudent or realistic by contrast. Our main character, being Anne Elliot in this novel, is surprising, given the first act of the story features her only as the less pretty and less pretentious than her sisters and father, and therefore less listened to by every one of them, despite her good, or at least better-than-them, sense. Sir Walter Elliot, her father, is in debt and growing more in debt each week, as the extravagances of his and his daughter Elizabeth's lives at Kellitch Hall surpass their income. When Kellitch Hall is to be rented out, however, to reduce their expenses and gain some additional income, there's an open question of what kind of person is good enough to rent this storied place. And with the recent outbreak of peace... They decide that officers of Her Majesty's Navy, newly returned ashore with prestige and fortune, should be to whom attention is paid. The thing that struck me is how often men of the Navy in this novel are referred to as liberal. What do you think this means? Is it, for Jane Austen, writing Persuasion in 1815, a kind of polite word for queer? I assume that the natural fitting of gay men in the Navy was known 200 years ago, though it surprises me to come across it here. We are no stranger to queer subtext on this podcast, nor to queer characters or queer events of plot, but sometimes I can still be surprised by queer text qua text. Given that Persuasion is a story with a great deal to say about prejudice, privilege, and discrimination, is it a wonder that queerness is acceptable for those with enough prestige of military office and a sufficiently large fortune made through the execution of that office? Or does a description like, besides their liberality, they are so neat and careful in all their ways, mean that the gentry do look down on it after all, but they are desperate enough for money that queerness can be overlooked? Maybe that their gay habits and practices might be observed only at sea and unperformed or safely hidden in the great hall such as Kellitch on land in sovereign England. Do you think that Belgravia in the Princess Switch? Or uh, the other one Margaret is from, if you can remind me of its name, has a navy? Do you imagine they are instead one of the parts of Europe truly landlocked? <laughs> or might they be both landlocked and have a navy? I await your reply. Donning now my gay apparel, Juliet. Right. let's uh, let's see here, aww, a darling envelope, let's see here. Dear Juliet, I appreciate your flexibility in writing letters instead of our usual dialogue, since between me running around Europe on a work trip and the time difference from you in the American Midwest though not quite Chicago, where Kevin and Olivia in The Princess Switch still live, this makes the most sense for producing our cast miss. Thank you for your questions about the intersection of queerness and military history, which I'll admit I'm in no way qualified to answer. However, I, much like our protagonist, Anne Elliot, have plans to travel to Bath, England, in the coming weeks. Once there, I will go to a Jane Austen tourist attraction and find the oldest, most British, most distinguished looking tour guide and ask them, So approximately, how many of those liberal soldiers were gay? (laughs) Oh, this is funny. I'm currently in Munich, Bavaria? which is not to be confused with Belgravia, like I did, which is why I agreed to go on a work trip to Bavaria. To my great disappointment, Belgravia, the country featured in The Princess Switch, does not exist in our world. <laughs> you can understand my confusion, as so many details from this Netflix-made Christmas movie, such as the other Netflix-made Christmas movies that the characters watch, and Santa Claus, do exist in our world. We, of course, are here to discuss what Jane Austen might call the natural sequel of an unnatural beginning. The Princess Switch sequel, The Princess Switch Switched Again. In the first movie, which we discussed in conversation with the sensationalist novel, Lady Oddly Secret, an ordinary baker named Stacy DeNovo from Chicago swaps places with her look-alike Lady Margaret, who wants to see what it's like to be a normal person for a day instead of royalty. Both fall in love with men outside their social class as a result of the switch. In the, in the sequel in the sequel, Princess Switch switched again, some old guy dies, and Lady Margaret suddenly has to be the next queen. This is sort of used as an excuse for why things didn't work out with her middle-class American baker beau, Kevin, although the details are a bit vague. In any case, they're broken up at the beginning of the movie, and she and Stacy swap again to give Margaret a break from her queenly duties so she can focus on falling back in love with Kevin. Whew, what a letter. Anne Elliot in Persuasion, sadly, does not have a Stacy novo in her life to help her, when her father's tenant, who rents out Kellitch, just happens to be related to her own messy ex. She and Frederick Wentworth were in love eight years ago, but she rejected his proposal on the encouragement of the snooty family friend Lady Russell, who thought he was too low for an Elliot despite Ann and Wentworth's chemistry and, like, disposition. Now Wentworth is back, way richer after the war, and maybe also gay, if we follow your reading? both of these narratives ask how can two people whose romantic relationship didn't work out make it work i'm curious about your initial reactions obviously the princess switch switched again does not fully live up to the charm of the original princess switch as we're just watching the same couple from the first movie fall in love again (laughs) although perhaps paradoxically something i find disappointing about persuasion is that we never get to see anne and wentworth fall in love the first time we just know it was hot from Anne's excessive pining every time he's around. What are your first thoughts on these second chances, Offeiersen, Catherine? <sighs> hmm. Really makes you think. <laughs> Dear Catherine, Second chances, I like to think, are my speciality. I have just come from a nearly three-hour neurology appointment with all that entails, and what seems like a bad day due to an enduringly onerous medical system and the complaints of a slow decline in the quality of one's nerves must be remedied by the hope that the day when given a second chance may prove fruitful once more. It is a great day to be alive but I fear that second chances may not always be enough for every relationship. It's enough for Margaret and Kevin, sure, but even that has a very rocky middle, thanks to the machinations and interference of Margaret's nefarious, identical cousin Fiona pretending to be Margaret and breaking things off for good. But I think I'm most like the absent Stacy, for my part constantly with a headache and a fever such that she cannot be seen. Or so Olivia tells Stacy's Christmas husband, Prince Edward. In fact, I feel as though no one ever gets as sick as I do, or sick the way I do. I should think I am far sicker than anyone else. I've had lovely days, and last night was wonderful, but oh, today I am sick again and uniquely affected by this malady. In fact, it seems as though I reflect another character that of Mary Elliot, our protagonist Anne's younger sister, the youngest, and the first married of the three Elliot sister siblings. She has her Charles, her husband, who actually proposed to Anne before he married his sister Mary, and I have my loves, but she is always so sickly about everything and so particular in her sickness, so individuated, that she is the only woman who has ever been sick, and the only woman to have ever suffered so. She's truly a martyr for the sex, and I think I take after her in every fashion in that stride. Or maybe I am even worse than she is, for I truly think no character in fiction can match my woe, and yet no one will pay me the attention that is due. So Prince Edward is constantly trying to get a loving moment with his Stacy, but she is always absent somewhere else, doing bigger and better things, and often hiding it from him. Perhaps, in a way, Mary Elliot, who in truth would be so forgettable if she were not such a perfect martyr, reflects Edward in her longing for her husband to pay her the heed to which she is due. Surely you must agree with me on this, I am certain. As I take after our great heroines in the history of Jane Austen, I would sooner take after Stacy de Novo, but lack a suitable duchess with whom to switch roles in life and in whose shoes, with suitable hairspray, I might too become a princess. Surely this is the due of all those who suffer, and by all those I do mean strictly me? Yours, sufferingly, Juliet. another letter let's see how wonderful dear Juliet ah yes Mary Elliot as I recall she is truly the most ill and most afflicted martyr of hers or any sex that is until there's a desirable social event that her illness would prevent her from attending and then her woes are miraculously healed I indeed see the resemblance. Comparing Mary, and by extension yourself, to the perfectly unoffensive and blandly likable Prince Edward is a stretch, but out of respect for your suffering, I will give you a pass. Oh, thank you. While I'm not glad about your medical circumstance, I am glad that you brought up illness in relation to these two texts. As you wrote, illness is used in The Princess Switch 2 as a cough, cough, I'm sick excuse why Stacy is nowhere to be seen when in reality she's pretending to be Lady Margaret. Okay. I am particularly interested in illness these days as I found myself with persistent food poisoning and spent more of my three days in Vienna than I would prefer holed up in my hotel suite, trying desperately to figure out how to get a banana delivered to me via the German version of Uber Eats. I don't know what they'd call that, but I guess uber eats. (laughs) Okay, back to the letter. Illness, or to be more precise, physical impairments and the rest and recovery that follow play a larger role in persuasion. Early in the novel, Anne's reunion with Captain Wentworth is delayed thanks to a fall and a broken collarbone from Mary's child, Anne's nephew. Someone has to stay home with him while everyone else runs off to mingle with the new tenants, and Anne, ever the people pleaser, volunteers. It's Austin's sly way of building suspense, delaying Anne's and the reader's first encounter in the text with Captain Wentworth. There's another fall halfway through the novel that's way more dramatic. Ian figures Wentworth has moved on and watches him flirt with all the younger available women around him. It's kind of like an episode of The Bachelor, Mary's sister-in-law Henrietta has her eyes on another guy, but her sister Louisa is very single and ready to mingle. Austin sets them up as a respectable match. Wentworth is like, I want a stubborn wife who knows her mind, and then Louisa is like, I am stubborn, I know my mind, I know I want to jump off this ledge. She jumps to her death? I mean, not really, but on the first reading, I legitimately thought she was dead. Austin describes her as being taken up lifeless, and her face was like death. Like, what the heck? I thought this was a romantic comedy. Everyone starts freaking out about the dead girl, and her sister, who has passed out from the shock, especially Wentworth, and Anne is the only one calm enough to be like, maybe we should get help, and starts bossing everyone around, but in the way you want someone with good sense to do during an emergency. Louisa turns out to be… fine, and the experience trauma bonds everyone involved. Does watching Louisa almost die make Wentworth realize how much he loves her and make him want to marry her? He does attend to her with a deep concern that feels suitable for a fiancé. Or does seeing how dangerous it is for a woman to refuse to change her mind, and she basically falls off a cliff, make Anne, sensible and grounded and subject to persuasion, more appealing? Of course, we all know the answer. Injury and recovery, and how those around respond, play a crucial role in Anne and Wentworth's journey towards a happy union. It's as if, in sickness and in health, needs to be tested out before the marriage, not just after. Do we see any similar mechanisms at play in The Princess Switch Switched Again? What plot points are necessary for Kevin and the Queen to be together? My first thought is Christmas, but I'd love to hear yours. Love from London, Catherine. Wow, dear Catherine, charming Chicagoan baker. Heaven, and Queen to be Margaret, are certainly fated to be mated, but the orchestration to get them there is interesting. Christmas is the answer, in that Christmas ultimately brought them together to begin with, and Christmas provides the vector for them to be a part of each other's lives once more, and reignite that spark. It is also likewise Christmas in that Santa Claus, the magical old man from the first movie, does his part to delay Kevin leaving the country until Stacy can be returned from being kidnapped, the false coronation can be undone, and Margaret can run to catch them in the airport. The thing that I think stands as a useful metaphor for both the means of constructing one's own identity and the obstacle to love is… hairspray. In the first movie, Mrs. Donatelli makes a big deal out of how hairspray is important to the coiffed poise and couture of Lady Margaret. Stacy is unused to it, and astonished by it. And so, once more during our transformation sequences in this movie, the montage circles back to hairspray, as something all three women who would be Margaret have to deal with. That is. Stacy playing Margaret with Margaret's permission, Margaret being half Stacy but still so very much herself in Kevin's presence, and Fiona assuming the guise of Margaret for her own and Antonio's nefarious schemes. Hairspray is a delightful, airy thing, a construct made of balance, position, adherence, and belief. It supports beauty, it enables security and grace, it comes at some cost writ large, but that cost is considered afforded by the aesthetic good it presents. In this way, I think hairspray is a perfect cipher for Christmas, which also does each of these things. By balancing our belief in and performance of Christmas, we can make a carefully constructed but very organically defined, real, visible thing that is Christmas. And Christmas helps us do Christmas again in the same way next year. The same way that Hairspray helps one have the same hair each time one needs it. But fittingly for our literature this season, Hairspray also works as a cipher for class. In both Princess Switch movies so far, Hairspray is invoked when Stacy DeNovo, the baker from Chicago, needs to assume the noble guise of Margaret. It is foreign to her straightforward and utilitarian approaches to beauty. Hairspray helps define the layers between hair, supporting them structurally upon one another and enforcing the spaces between them rather than letting them mingle coequally. The security and grace secured by the idea of class, by the idea of power attached to family names and great houses, comes at a cost to everything around it. Likewise, one would hope that antiquated notions of class could be equally... flammable? Not yet so flammable are these notions in Anne Elliot's time, though she professes no particular care for the discriminations of her family along the lines of class. The Elliot pride afflicts her elder sister Elizabeth and her father, Sir Walter, immensely, and her younger sister Mary is in no way immune to it either. Thinking about Kevin and Margaret, what she says in the movie stuck with me. You don't need to be a count, or a prince, or a king. You just have to be you. Both Kevin and Margaret feel the weight of their difference in class, and Margaret's surprising coronation caused them to break separate ways in the first place. I think in the case of Anne, this pride, difference, and discrimination can be alighted with loyalty, with steadfastness, and with love. And in Kevin and Margaret's side in the movie, with these three things, loyalty, steadfastness, and love, and also Christmas by their side. In both these stories, good things come to those who wait, longingly, perhaps wistfully, how do you feel about the message that actually the right one did get away but you can get them back in good cheer Juliet What's this Oh so sweet. Looks like this is from Bath, England. Okay. Dear Juliet, Greetings from Bath, England. Here I am walking the same paths as our bestie Jane Austen, getting hit on by the same rain that Anne was spared thanks to Wentworth and his trusty umbrella. Alas, I do not have a suitor to walk me home, so I must wait out the downpour in a cafe where I'm enjoying a rich, creamy, hot chocolate that's worthy of a princess. Thank you for the lovely analysis of Hairspray, even if I now have, Mama, I'm a big girl now, stuck in my head. I want to push back a little at Hairspray as a Cypher for Christmas, though. You describe the holiday as a very organically defined, real, visible thing. What exactly does Christmas look like? Oh, I mean... Uh, let's see. You ask a great question though, how do I feel about the crux of this trope that both narratives are indulging in, the, it didn't work out the first time, but it will this time. I enjoy many rom-com tropes, my favorite being the fake dating one. Being on the asexual spectrum, it just makes sense to me that people would most easily fall in love while doing romantic things with no expectation of sex. I have mixed feelings on the exes to lovers trope, though. On the one hand, I appreciate the message that people can change. Of course, Western narrative is built on the idea of change. Characters change, and are changed by, the world around them. This trope hones in on relationships, though, and proves a mantra I find very comforting. All things in time. These two people couldn't find happiness together at one point, but with more experience and more shenanigans and, more importantly, time, An understanding can be negotiated and happiness can be achieved. It's like macaroni and cheese, warm and gooey comfort. On the other hand, it's a trope that glorifies nostalgia that says the past can become your future. And while I'm certainly prone to nostalgic watches of, say, It's a Wonderful Life and Miracle on 34th Street, nostalgia can have a dark side. On a personal-psychological level, people who go overboard on nostalgia may have a hard time embracing a present and future that can never live up to the idealized past. And, on a societal level, an attempt to make a failed past work in the future can be used to manipulate and mislead a public. A con artist running for office might, for instance, offer to make a country great again. I'll be honest and say I'm partly bitter about this trope and persuasion because Captain Bennick is right there, a hot sad widower who likes to read, and he and Anne hit it off right away. She pulls him out of his grieving shell, challenges him, and in so doing, realizes she may not always be practicing what she preaches when it comes to patience and resignation. It feels like a cop-out that he ends up with Louisa because he and Anne are clearly a wonderful match. But no, Anne has to end up with the ex, because that's the trope. I'm going to say something controversial that might end our friendship, but it's the truth and should be stated. If done poorly, this trope can lead to the marriage of two characters who the audience has no reason to believe are right for each other other than that they had the hots for each other as teenagers, leading to a contrived and disappointing ending. Oh, that's kind of foreboding, isn't it? A contrived and disappointing ending? Okay, let's see what else is in this letter. I think the Princess Switch switched again earned the ending, as we do see Kevin and Margaret spend time together. Persuasion less so although the letter Wentworth writes is very spoonworthy and Anne and Wentworth reveal themselves to be deeply compatible throughout the novel. However, the 2008 film Mamma Mia does a terrible job using this trope as a crutch to throw Meryl Streep and James Bond together, forcing an artificial happy ending totally unearned by their arcs prior to the finale, which are, to be frank, contrived and boring, with love, Catherine? Catherine! What on earth? No. No. Just hello Catherine. I don't know where to begin. Let's start with your inane question. What does Christmas look like? Are you kidding me? How are we supposed to do a Christmas media podcast together if you don't know what Christmas looks like? I I I could go into detail. The warm and the cold, the natural and the commercial, the darkest nights of the year shared in bright light and joy. But at the end of the day, there's something you can certainly say about Christmas. You know it when you see it. I'm concerned by you, co-host of a Christmas podcast, not knowing what Christmas looks like. Do you know what a snowman is? What a jingle bell sounds like? whether or not Marley was dead as a doornail. But more than that, I'm deeply disappointed with your ship in persuasion. Captain Bennick and Anne? What heteronormative nonsense is this? Have you learned nothing from our queer readings over the years? The sweet, sensitive Captain Bennock and Captain Harville, the brother of Bennick's departed wife, are so clearly coded as boyfriends. They live together, they literally live together, pair bonded by love and fate, and the fact that they don't have other available outlets for their keenest liberal aspect. In a throwback to Lady Audley's Secret, we know what it means when a man settles for marrying his close male friend's sister, who just so happens to look like his close male friend. The most egregious part of your letter, though. The most unforgivable display of poor cognitive reasoning and an upper-class European disdain for what is good and honest is your absurd and baseless criticism of the greatest film of our generation, 2008's Mamma Mia. Its first act structure is pivotal and priceless in conveying through patterns, behavior, dialogue, and plot the necessary emotional stakes and intricate hidden information setup for the thrilling second act and the cry every time third act. That James Bond, as you call him, is willing to be vulnerable, to say he was wrong, to ask Donna to love again. This is the highest we can ask for in a man and that Donna has kept Sam Carmichael in her heart, and in the architecture and notions and knick knickknacks of her own Greek villa hotel, I see you kept my bagpipes. means that it is a requirement not just for them to each love each other, but for them to recognize that the opportunity for love is not lost in themselves. The past can be corrected. Our histories are imperfect, not magical, and that is what makes us human. What makes being human magical, and what makes Christmas and the seaside both so powerful, is that given the opportunity for a new environment, to be surrounded by factors that can evoke these necessary emotions in us, we can change. Last Christmas I gave you my heart. This year Maybe I can change that. That is the true message of Mamma Mia. That and that the goddess of love sits as witness to all forms of honest love and blesses them. Much like the Ronnie Corbett-like Santa Claus exists within the universe of the Princess Switch and the Princess Switch Switched Again, to ensure that Olivia's dreams of love for herself and for her father are seen to fruition. I can see your travels have gotten to your head. And your tastes have become so European that you can no longer tell a good movie musical or a good pair for our beloved Anne Elliot when you see one. I don't know how I can be expected to go on with someone whose taste and critical ability are so lacking. This podcast is ruined. See the blazing yule before us. Juliet.